0: Verse 23, So it was necessary for the sketches, notice the shadow or the blueprint of the tabernacle, of the things of heaven to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves required a better sacrifice than these. Look, these were tents and utensils that were going to be surviving for maybe 100 or 200 years. Because that was one of the commands of Exodus was you also had to have the tent makers and the tent repairers and the people who would make ut- new utensils when the metals rust and stuff. So the idea is that this tabernacle was not the same tabernacle all throughout the years because they were constantly repairing and replacing fabric. And so these things, were re- they were able to be cleansed with the blood of an animal. But if we're talking about something that lasts for eternity... Then you need an eternal blood in order to cleanse it. You can cleanse temporary things with temporary blood, but you cannot cleanse eternal things with temporary blood. That's the point. So he says that the heaven itself, the heavenly things need to be purified. Now that means to say, like, okay, wait a minute. Heaven needs it to be purified, but in heaven there's no sin, in heaven there's no rebellion. And we know this because heaven, God is in heaven, and God can't be where there's sin, so therefore there's no sin in heaven. And that's the hope. I mean, if there's sin in heaven, then our hope is you might as well forget it. So what does he mean there? The best that, trans, that scholars can figure out is it does not say specifically heaven. It says the heavenly things. And if you fit it back into the context, what was being sprinkled... With the blood of the animals, the people in the tabernacle. What is it that the author of Hebrews keeps talking about over and over and over again? We're the ones being perfected. We're the ones being redeemed. We're the ones being made righteous. We're the ones being cleansed. So what are the heavenly things that are being cleansed? It's us. We are the new people, and we are the new temple, the new tabernacle. And we are heavenly things because we were, though we have a beginning, we have no end. We are eternal creatures. God is the only creature, and that's not even a proper term for Him. He's the only being who is eternal past and eternal future. Who was and is and is to come. Though we are not eternal past, we are eternal future. The question is, where are you going to spend your eternity? And so we are heavenly things. We were created for heaven. When we were created, heaven and earth were together in the garden. And humans were walking in the garden, and God was walking in the garden, and that made it material and heaven together. But those things fell. And so when earth and heaven were together, earth literally fell from heaven. And so no longer is earth able to be back in heaven because it's not purified so technically this is a heavenly thing so since we're meant to live for eternity we are heavenly things and so if we are eternal creatures then we need an eternal blood to cleanse us because the only way you can cleanse something is with the life of a righteous being And if the blood of an animal can only temporarily clean, then we need the blood of God himself. And that's the transition he's making, is that by Moses sprinkling the people in the tabernacle, and then he had to do that every year. God goes on later and says, you have to do this every single year, and you have to do it with every generation. Every single generation. They had to go through this all over again. So every year they did the Day of Atonement to pay for all the sins that the people had committed in the last year, And every generation had to literally be covered with blood again, as well as the altar. And every generation had to stand up and say, yes, we agreed to the Mosaic Covenant. And over and over and over, because they're only temporary. Now, you and I are sprinkled one time, and that covers us for all eternity. Because the heavenly things, us, had to be cleansed. But we had to be cleansed with an eternal, perfect blood, and that's Jesus Christ. And so the animal blood could temporarily forgive you, so to speak, for lack of a better phrase, but they could not eternally forgive you. And that's why Jeremiah 31 can say, And I will remember your sins no more. No more. Verse 24, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, the representation of the true sanctuary, but into heaven itself. And He appears now in God's presence for us. And He did not enter to offer Himself again and again the way the priest enters the sanctuary year after year with the blood that is not His own. For then He would not have to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. Now that's the next point He makes. And I already mentioned it. He doesn't do this again and again and again and again. I mentioned Day of Atonement every single year And every generation had to agree to the Mosaic Covenant and actually be sprinkled with blood. And Christ enters one time. So if He is an eternal being who is perfect, that makes His sacrifice an eternal perfect sacrifice, which makes the blood cleansing of us a perfect eternal cleansing. Therefore, one death, once and for all, as He says. And this means that Christ's death is efficient, means it's capable of taking care of all his sins. It leaves no sin uncovered except for the one, and that's the rejection of him, the sacrifice, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And two, it's sufficient, which means there is no need for him to keep dying over and over again. Now, this is one of the big verses. They think that completely refutes Catholicism. Catholicism pretty much rests on the foundation of mass. Mass. Mass is the... And this doesn't mean that every single Catholic believes this. But the official teaching of the Catholic Church, according to Catechism, is that every single mass, Christ has to be re-crucified again. Because Christ's death only paid for the sins of everyone who lived before his death. But they did not pay for the sins of the future. That's why the priest does a ceremony called transmutation or transubstitution, Where he literally holds it up and blesses the bread. And they believe that the bread literally becomes the body of Christ. And the blood literally becomes the blood of Christ. And that's why every Catholic church you go into, Christ is still hanging on the cross. Because he has to be re-crucified. And so that Mass pays for the sins of all the ones that were committed since the last Mass. This is why, if you're about ready to die, the priest has to rush to your bedside and do last rites over your body because all the sins that you committed since last Mass have not been paid for. And it's also, if you've died before that, He only has a certain amount of minutes or hours, I don't know what it is, before He can do last rites over your body to atone for the sins since your last Mass. And that's necessary, because Christ has to be re-crucified all the time. It only covered the sins of the past. This is why the priest has to eat and drink all the leftover bread and wine, because it would be sacrilegious to throw the bread and the wine away. Which is why Calvin says that even a rat knows it's still bread, and will eat it because rats don't eat flesh and drink blood. But yet the rat will eat the bread at the end of communion. Okay, if you've ever read Calvin and Luther, they they weren't they did not have a lot of love when they spoke truth. That whole Ephesians passage, speak the truth and love. They kind of missed that one. Um, if you ever read Luther's account, he just damns everybody to hell. He literally does. So I mean, they're great men in faith, but man, it was a different time period back then, and so the reality is you have to do this and in this passage says he did not have to die again and again and again, like the priests had to go with the animals. he died once and for all, and that was one of the big things in the Protestant church. Two major things happen. When the Reformation came along, one, Christ was taken off of all the icons of the cross because he's not there anymore. And two, they put this big giant fence between the priest and the Word of God and the congregation. It was called an iron rod. And it meant that you didn't have access before God because you're sin, you kept sinning and there was still a need for another sacrifice. And the first thing the Reformers did was they they went to all these churches that converted, not all Catholic, but the ones that converted, and they tore down this iron rod gate and ripped it down, basically saying, we all are the priesthood of believers now. We all have access to the Word of God and to the altar of God because Christ has atoned for all of us and lives in us, and we all have access to God. And that was two major events in the Reformation. You can even go to a lot of the Catholic churches in Israel and Europe and still see some of those iron rods and curtains up there. And it means you don't have access. Because you need a Mass and you need a priest. And that's, this passage is a big passage that really refutes that idea. Once and for all. Once and for all. And, and, and even if you didn't have this verse, the logical conclusion of him keep pointing out that Christ is superior and then a repetitious animal sacrifice should lead you to that conclusion on its own. And so that's important to understand. Verse 26, For then he would have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. Now, Take that idea. He would have had to keep suffering over and over and over again if it did not cleanse for the sins. But we don't see Him suffering over and over again. Now, kick that back on the previous passage of chapter 6, where He says, For if you repent, you would have to re-crucify Christ all over again, and that's not going to happen. So this is the second time that it mentions that Christ cannot be re-crucified again. Because His death is sufficient and efficient. And this is also a verse that you can use with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, because Mormons claim that His death is efficient, but it's not sufficient. It doesn't cover all sins. It was efficient and that it was good, but it didn't take care of everything. They believe that there's no way that we could ever be saved without Christ. But once that Christ paid for all of our sins, it's up to us to finish it. It's kind of like coming to a big boulder and there's, you know how hard it is to get like a car stuck in the snow or the mud or a giant boulder and to get that inertia and movement going is so difficult. But once you start building up some momentum, it becomes a little bit easier to push the car or to push the boulder. That's the idea. The boulder was unmovable. But when Christ died on the cross, his death was enough to get it going. But it's up to you and your works to keep the boulder going. And if you don't keep pushing with your own works, then you will not make it into heaven. Because that boulder is now moving with momentum, but it will not make it into heaven on its own. And so the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons say that Christ's death on the cross is necessary, and you're only saved by faith, but you also need works. And this is really important because I've had students come back to me and say, the people came to my door and said, we're saved by faith. And I said, yeah, go back and ask them this. And they're like, oh yeah, you're only saved by faith, but you also have to obey this and obey that and obey that. And and my students say, well, what happens if you don't obey it? Well, you don't make it into heaven. So you're not saved by faith. Yes, you are saved by faith. And they keep jumping through those hoops. And so this is an important passage to understand that the Jehovah Witnesses have changed parts of the Bible, but they have not changed this. And their Bible says this too. once, and for all, for all sins. There's no need for any more works. There's no more need for any more sacrifices. So it's amazing how many belief systems this one passage takes care of, of people who claim to be Christians, but really are not. But now He has appeared, verse for once and for all, at the consummation of the ages, to put away sin by His sacrifices. All ages are dealt with now all ages past, and all ages future. And just as the people are appointed to die once and then face judgment, so also after Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly await Him, He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation. So, now this isn't talking about people who died and were raised from the dead again, like Lazarus. okay? Because technically they did not die and then face judgment. But generally speaking, you die, and then you face judgment. There's this no idea that you die, and judge, and die, and get judged, and die, and get judged. That's reincarnation. Just as we are going to pretty much die, like a total death, like you stay death, and you will be judged, and that will be final. Therefore, Christ also died one time, and He was judged, and then He defeated, found not to be guilty because he was righteous and met all the requirements of the law and conquered death, conquered the judgment, conquered the grave, and came back. So if we only die once and get judged once, then why do you claim that Jesus has to die and get judged over and over and over and over again for all eternity? So it's another way of saying he's not on the cross anymore. Because if there's only one death and one judgment, then there only needs to be one death and one cruc- and one payment for sins, only one. And this is so and so important. If Christ has to die over and over and over again, can we truly say that He's better than the animal sacrifices? If the whole argument of the Book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than, well, then is He better than? He's no different than an animal. That's blasphemous. And so the reality is it does not work logically. It does not work historically. It does not work theologically. Once and for all. Once and for all. So he came two times. He came once to pay for sins. And the second he will come to bring all the blessings. That's it. Not again and again and again. One time. And the second time to bring blessings. Any questions? The point of this is that old covenant is now abolished because the one who made it died. But I thought the death of the maker is what I've validated it, not what abolished it. The death of the one who makes the law, God slash Jesus Christ, abolishes the law, does away with it, because it's a will. And you don't, you don't need a will anymore. Once the will goes into effect, you read off the blessings of the will, these things go to these children, and the will you pretty much can burn it up because once everything is disseminated, then you don't need the will anymore. So it abolishes the law. But at the same time, it puts all the blessings of the law in effect or it fulfills it. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, and maybe it's just Yeah. Here's here's the thing. God is so incredibly complex. And when He's doing things, it is accomplishing so many things in just one event. Every action is producing so many... I mean, our, we've always been taught that every action has an opposite and equal reaction. With God, it's every action has an opposite and equal, like, million actions. So many things are going into effect. And so this, this is the thing. This is what I tell my students. So we're going through the book of First Peter, we're going through this book, and they'll give me an answer like, well, what is justification? How is justification working in your life, or something like that? They'll give me an answer. And I'll say, Well, then no, that's something else. And they're like, Yes, it is. My Sunday school teacher or my pastor told me this, and it makes perfect sense. And I'm like, actually, yes, you're right. But that's the answer for Paul's argument about justification, but that's not the answer for First Peter's argument about justification. And so that's the difficulty is yes, you're right. But we're in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is tracking this train of thought. And what he's tracking is that Christ abolishes the law and brings an end to things. Where Romans is probably tracking the idea that everything comes in fulfillment. And the law is made complete and all this kind of stuff. And so the authors can only track one thought and so they choose one and go, and this is the beauty of the Bible, because now you've got Romans, and he takes you down a line. Then you've got Hebrews, and he takes you down a line, and Peter takes you down a line, and you put them all together, and you have this beautiful rainbow kaleidoscope action of what God is doing. But they can only focus on one. So yes, 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 yes. And then I know that doesn't totally answer the question, but does that kind of make sense? And that's the problem, is like, we're... Tr- and I think this is why it's so important to do a book of the Bible study. Like, If we do a topical study, it gets so confusing. If we do a topical study in justification, oh my goodness. If you had to deal with every passage about justification, it's going to be like, I mean, this is heavy stuff alone. I mean, even as I'm explaining it, it's like, okay, i got to remind myself how this is working. This is heavy stuff, and he's only t- taking one train of thought. Peter's got a different angle. James has got a different angle. Paul has got a different angle. And so right now, he's tracking the angle that the will comes to an end and the law is abolished because Christ who made it is dead and everything has come to an end. Or Romans is going to track the thought that the law is fulfilled. And now all the requirements are met in it. And that's kind of what I talked about a couple of weeks ago, as I took a little bit of the Romans route to try to explain why the law is still good. Does so that kind of make sense? Does that help? If you need to, like, think about it a little bit more and come back to me later, that's, I'm more than willing. So, I mean, this is heavy, deep stuff. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of a little frustrating because you want to get it. We're Americans, and we want to get it the first time because we live in a fast food, drive through remote control, instant gratification, microwave culture. Okay? And the problem is the Bible is so heavy and so many th- threads that we've got to just keep going over and over and over and over again. But at the same time, it's, that's awesome because it means we'll never get bored with this story. Whenever it means that this is the Sunday school story that excited you when you're a four-year-old kid, as my daughter loves hearing about it. But no matter how many times I tell her this story, no matter how long, long she lives, there's always going to be a new layer for her to understand as she gets older. And this is why Jesus in John chapter 14 says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And if you obey me, I'll go to the Father and I'll ask Him to reveal more of my word to you. And a lot of times... And so, there, and, then, and don't don't think that all your answers are going to get, all your questions are going to get answered when you get to heaven. I, mean, I know we got these long lists, but you are not God. So you never will be God. You'll never fully comprehend Him. And I think for all eternity, we'll still be figuring out the gospel. And there will always be new more to learn about God. I mean, Adam and Eve were good and a good, right relationship with God. And they did not have all the knowledge of wisdom. Because God wanted them to get it from Him instead of the tree. And so there will be an eternity of peeling back more and more layers of the Word of God and the revelation of God. So, in some ways it's kind of frustrating, but in other ways just allow it. So, if if we need to come back to that later, we will. Because the goal is to understand. But sometimes we need to let it marinate too. Some of these things have been marinating for a long time, and then one day I just wake up and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's it. Okay, And I haven't thought about that passage in a while, but some other passage triggers something. That's the other thing that's cool. is You study this book and you keep going through the Bible over and over again, and the next thing you know, you're in First Peter. And you're studying First Peter, and all of a sudden First Peter triggers an idea that you learned back in this book over here. And that book that you're struggling with all of a sudden makes sense because now you're in First Peter, and he helps you, and that's where it gets exciting. That's where it gets exciting. And that's what you hold on to when you go those months and nothings. No light bulbs are going off. Because there's many months that I've gone, and I don't feel like any light bulbs are going off ever. But I hold on to all the times that they did. And look forward to the next.